Take your copy of God's Word and open it with me to the Gospel of John. And we are in chapter 7, picking up where we left off last week, verses 25 through 36. The words will also be on the screen. But John chapter 7, starting in verse 25. There was a man who lived in the 20th century whose name you probably have heard, a man named Howard Hughes. And in the middle of the 20th century, at one point, he was the richest man on earth. He became a millionaire at the age of 18. Over the years, he founded numerous companies and he produced numerous popular movies. He uh, was an aviator. He designed airplanes as a pilot. He set numerous world records for speed. He did all of these things. He accomplished all of this. But the one thing that Howard Hughes wanted for most of his life was simply to be left alone. He had no siblings. His parents died when he was young. He had no friends. He never married. He had no kids. He spent almost all of his spare time in hotel rooms by himself ordering room service so he would not have to interact with other people. One of the things that Howard Hughes was known for was the fact that he did not want to be known. Well, I tell you this because we have a God who does want to be known. He can be known and known personally, and he sent his only begotten son from heaven to earth so that we could know him. As Jesus was nearing the end of his earthly ministry, as he was nearing the cross, he prayed in John 17, and in verse 13, he said, or verse 3, he said this, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice this, eternal life is simply knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. And to know God, you must know Jesus because he is the one whom God sent into the world to save us. In our scripture this morning, Jesus is teaching in the temple during what was the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the middle of this teaching that we're going to look at today, Jesus made this statement. I believe it is a key statement in verse 28. Speaking of his father, Jesus said to them, whom you do not know. He looked out at this crowd of people, thousands of people, and for most of them, their problem was, according to Jesus, they did not know God. And we're going to continue to study this passage this morning. As we do, there are some lessons about Jesus. There's some things that he did and some things about him that I want us to see that makes it possible for us to know God by knowing Jesus and knowing him personally. First of all, I want you to notice the error he corrects. There is an error that was held by most of the people that Jesus corrects in this passage, and it's an error that is very common today. Look at verse 25. 
Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? You know, it's kind of funny. A few verses earlier, they said to Jesus, Ah, Jesus, you're crazy. There's nobody trying to kill you. And then they turn around a few verses later and say, this is the guy they're trying to kill, right? But as Jesus is teaching in the temple, the people were really amazed by two things. They were amazed at the audacity of Jesus to teach in the temple, but they were also amazed at the fact that he got away with it. Have you ever done something before that maybe was a little bit crazy, and then when you were done, you said to yourself, I can't believe I got away with that. Well, that's kind of what we see happening here. Jesus is teaching, but the Bible tells us that the, the authorities did not do anything to stop him. And so the people began to reason and they began to think, well, maybe the reason why he's getting away with it, maybe the reason why he's teaching and no one is doing anything to stop him is because they secretly believe that he is the Messiah. And for a very brief moment, they thought, okay, yes, maybe this Jesus is the Christ. But as soon as that idea came, for most of them, it was quickly dismissed. Because look at what they said in verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, let me just explain this. Some of the Jews back then, not all of them, but some of them had this belief that when the Messiah, when the Savior came, he would just show up and appear suddenly out of nowhere. No background, no history. He would not be born. He would just show up. Now, we know that Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. We know that Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But not all of the Jews accepted Isaiah and Micah as Scripture. And because they rejected that part of the Hebrew Bible, they had this rather strange idea that one day when the Messiah comes, he will just suddenly appear out of nowhere. And so... For a moment, they began to think, maybe this Jesus is the Christ, but then they thought, ah, oh, but wait. Yeah, that's right. We know where Jesus is from. He's from Nazareth. And therefore, they concluded he could not be the Messiah. Now, this brings up a very good question. Why didn't Jesus just appear when it was time for him to die on the cross for us? and be buried and rise again? Why didn't he just suddenly show up, do what he came to do, and then return back to heaven? Why did he have to be born and live three decades as the son of, a, of an obscure Jewish carpenter before he ever began his ministry, before he ever began to teach or perform any miracles? Why didn't he just appear? Well, Jesus did not appear because he had to be born 
as a man in order to die in the place of humanity. He did not just appear because it was necessary for Jesus to live a normal life and to experience the things that we experience. It was necessary for Jesus to walk in our shoes and suffer just like we suffer and be tempted just like we are tempted. It was necessary for Jesus to go through all of the highs and the lows of life and yet be obedient to the Father and to do all of this without sin. This was necessary because Jesus was fulfilling the law for us. He was taking the test for us in your place and in mine. He had to come and live this normal life so that he could be innocent and then exchange his innocence for our guilt when he laid down his life on the cross for us. That is why Jesus did not just appear. But look at verse 28. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, you both know me and you know where I am from and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true whom you do not know. But I know him for I am from him and he sent me. Now, first of all, I want you to notice that Jesus cried out. Here he is in the temple in front of thousands of people and he lifted his voice. He shouted this truth. And the thing that Jesus shouted to them in the Greek, this could also be translated as a question and I believe that it makes more sense. You know me? In other words, you think you know me? Jesus shouted, you think you know where I am from? That's what you think. By the way, there are many people today who, just like the crowd in John 7, who think they know Jesus, but they do not. They may know some things about Jesus, but they do not know him personally. Well, why didn't they know him? Jesus said, you do not know me because you do not know my Father. In other words, you do not know God. And folks, let this sink in. They had the scriptures. They had the traditions. They had the history. They had the covenant. They had all of these things, and yet they did not know Jesus. They had all of these things, and yet Jesus said to them, you do not know God. And even when God came down from heaven to earth, and walked among them, they did not recognize him. Now, there is a very important lesson for us all to learn here. God, or knowing God, is more than knowing things about him. Knowing God is more than being religious. In fact, you can be immersed in religiosity and yet not know God. Think about what is happening here. Jesus is 
preaching in the most religious city in the world. He's preaching to what was probably the most religious people in the world. He was preaching during one of the biggest religious festivals in the world. And even there at that place, preaching to that people, Jesus cried out and said to them, you do not know God. Now, why not? Well, Jesus said in chapter 5, you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. And he said earlier in chapter 7, whoever is willing to do God's will will know that my teaching is true. There must be this willingness, a willingness to acknowledge our guilt, a willingness to turn from our sin, a willingness to receive our, uh, to, to uh, surrender our lives, a willingness to receive Christ as Lord. And hear me very carefully, if that willingness is not present, there is no amount of religious activity that can take the place of it. And so there is this error. They thought they knew God because they had so much religion in their lives, but they did not know him. We see the error that Jesus corrects, but then we also see the expectations he exceeds. The expectations he exceeds. Look at verse 31. And many of the people believed in him and said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Whenever the gospel is preached, there are two things that will usually happen. On the one hand, some people will get mad. There are some who will reject it because they do not like what the gospel reveals about themselves and about their sin. But then there are others who will hear it and believe. There are those who will hear the gospel and rejoice when they hear how much God loves them and what Jesus did for them to save them. And sure enough, the Bible says that, yes, many of the people believed in him. There were those in the crowd that day who believed in Jesus, and those who believed in him, they did so upon asking themselves a question. Now, this question that they asked is a very good question. In fact, we would all do well to ask ourselves this question, and if you know someone who is kind of on the fence about Jesus, uh, I would ask them this question as well. And the question is, when the Christ comes, this Savior, this Messiah that God promised to send us, when he comes, will he do greater works than these that Jesus has done? I want you to think about that. If God himself were to come to us, would we expect him to do something that Jesus did not? What miracles would we expect him to do that Jesus did not do? What good works would we expect him to perform that Jesus did not perform? What prophecies would we expect someone else to fulfill that Jesus did not fulfill? What power would we expect someone else 
to display that Jesus did not display? What wisdom would we expect someone else to possess that Jesus did not possess? What love would we expect someone else to show that Jesus did not show? What victory would we expect somebody else to win that is greater than the victory Jesus won when he died and rose from the dead? What impact would we expect someone else to have greater than the impact that Jesus had You think about all that he has done, how he healed the sick and he raised the dead and he cast out demons and he calmed storms and he fed multitudes with just two fish and five loaves. He spoke words like no one else had ever spoken. He accepted the outcast. Let's just say theoretically just for the sake of argument, that Jesus is not the Messiah. Let's say for the sake of argument, he's not the Christ. I believe that he is with every fiber of my being. But let's just say theoretically that Jesus is not the Christ and that we are waiting for and we are looking for someone else. Let me ask you, when this other Messiah comes, do you expect him to preach a greater gospel? Do you expect him to change more lives? Do you expect him to free more people from bondage? Do you expect him to comfort more grief-stricken people? Do you expect him to restore more marriages than Jesus did? No way. When you consider all that Jesus did and everything that he's doing today and everything that he will do, you quickly discover that there is no one like Jesus. And what he's done for others, yes, he can do for you because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is Lord. So we see the error that Jesus corrects. They thought they knew him because they were so religious, but they did not. We see the expectations that he exceeds. How could anyone do more And he has done, they concluded. But we also see the authority he possesses. We see in this story the authority he possesses. Go back to verse 30. Therefore, they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Therefore, verse 30 says, in other words, because of what Jesus had just said, that he claimed to be from the Father and that he knew the Father. They sought to take him, to arrest him. But notice this, they could not as much as lay a hand on Jesus. Well, why not? Because of the size of the crowd to whom he was preaching? No. Because of the number of burly disciples who was following Jesus who might defend him? Well, no. Why couldn't they touch him? John says, because his hour had not yet come. Now, what hour is he referring to? That hour when Jesus would voluntarily lay down his life for you and for me. Now, six months later, Jesus would say, my hour has come. But until that time came, until his hour had come, they could not touch him. Look at verse 32. 
the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. Now, when the religious leaders heard that some people were speculating, maybe Jesus is the Christ, when they heard that some people were actually believing in him, they got upset. They said, we've got to do something about this. We've got to bring this to a halt. And so they sent the officers to go and arrest him. Now, if you continue reading the rest of the chapter, you will see that they did not arrest him. Well, why not? Later on, the Pharisees, they brought in the officers and they said, guys, why didn't you arrest Jesus like we told you to? And do you remember what they said? You remember the reason they gave for not arresting Jesus? They said, because no man ever spoke the way this man speaks. That was their reason. They were sent to arrest Jesus, but they captivated by him. It's like there was some kind of invisible restraint that was keeping them from arresting Jesus. They were ordered to arrest Jesus. It was their job to arrest Jesus, and he was right there. But they just couldn't do it. They didn't know why they couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. Ladies and gentlemen, Aren't you glad that man does not decide your fate? Aren't you glad that God is the one who determines our destiny? I tell you, the child of God in the will of God is invincible until God is finished with him. This world can throw you into a fiery furnace, but the flames cannot burn you unless God says so. The world can throw you into a lion's den. The lions cannot bite you unless God allows it. And we see the same authority in Jesus in John chapter 7. It reminds me of a story that I heard a number of years ago. There was a missionary who was called to Africa who was preaching the gospel to an unreached tribe. And one day, someone came to warn him that the tribal leader had become very uh, angry with him and had sent out a search party to find him and kill him. Well, when this missionary heard that there were these men who were seeking him and seeking to take his life, he ran for his life. When he had run as far as he possibly could, he saw a cave... And he went into that cave to rest and to hide from those who were pursuing him. As this missionary was sitting there in that cave, he said he noticed a single spider at the entrance, at the mouth of that cave, that dropped down and began to spin its web one strand at a time. And he sat inside of that cave and he just watched that spider doing its work. A little while later, he could actually hear the sounds of the men who were coming to kill him. They were coming to that cave. And just when they were at that point where they were going to go in that cave and, and look for him, and of course, if they found him, they would have killed him. But right when they came to the mouth of that cave, somebody said, don't bother. See that spider web? There's no way he could have gone in there without messing up the web. And they went on their way. 
Later on, when the missionary told this story, when he wrote down this testimony, he said the following. He said, where God is not present, a wall is like a spider web. But where God is present, a spider web is like a wall. Our God is so sovereign, he doesn't need anything. He can use a spider web in order to defend his people. And folks, the same authority that Jesus had in John chapter 7, he has over your life and over my life today. We see the authority that he possesses. One more thing in this passage that I want you to notice, and that's the opportunity he extends. The opportunity he extends. Look at verse 33. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. We know that Jesus was talking about what would happen after he died and rose again when he would ascend back to his father. And for some of the people in the crowd that day, that would mean a lost opportunity. Because listen to what he said in verse 34. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. We remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 7. Seek and you shall what? Find. Seek and you shall find. But here in John 7, he says, you will seek me and not find me. Well, why does he say that? What does that mean? That means that there is what we call a season of opportunity. That means that there is a window of time that God gives to each and every one of us to hear and to believe and to respond to God's call to us to come to him and be saved. And listen, a person never knows when this opportunity is going to come. A person never knows how long this opportunity is going to last when, when God calls someone. The Bible is full of warnings about the dangers of not waiting too long. We remember what God said in Genesis. He said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. We remember what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. In other words, a time will come when you cannot find him. The time will come when he is not near. Therefore, it is urgent that a man or woman responds when God gives them that opportunity to believe and be saved because the opportunity does not last forever. Jesus said the time is coming. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You'll, you'll seek me, but you won't be able to find me. And it's vitally important that we not allow anything to keep us from seizing that opportunity when it comes. And we're going to notice that for some of the people in John chapter 7, there was a very specific thing that was keeping them from coming to Jesus. A very specific thing. Look at verse 35. Then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me? and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. They thought, well, maybe Jesus is going to the dispersion. Well, what is that? We know that 
The Jews were spread out because of the exile. They lived, many of them, just like today, very far from Israel. Some of them thought, well, this place where Jesus said that he's going to go, this place where we're not going to be able to find him, maybe he's going to go far away where there are lots of Greeks, lots of Gentiles, and he's just going to preach to them instead. Maybe that's the place where he's going where we cannot go. Now, listen, we know that they totally misunderstood what Jesus was saying. But why are they saying it? Why are they asking this question? They're asking this question and they're saying, well, if Jesus plans on preaching to the Greeks, we definitely don't want anything to do with him. That's their point. God forbid that Jesus brings salvation to anybody outside of Israel. Well, he can't be our Messiah if he's going to go to the Gentiles. You realize different things keep different people from believing? For some people, the thing that keeps them from coming to Christ is materialism. They just love money more than God. And for some people, the thing that keeps them from coming to Christ is pleasure. There's just some sin that they're not willing to give up. For some people, the thing that keeps them from coming is vanity. What will people think if I come to Christ? What was it for some of these people in John chapter 7 that kept them from coming to Jesus? It was their hatred of the Greeks. It was their disdain for Gentiles. The thing that kept not all, but many of them from coming to Christ was their racism. It would kind of be like saying, well, I don't want to go to heaven if so-and-so is there. But whatever it is that stands in your way, remember, time will come when it'll be too late. And Jesus makes this statement here in chapter 7. It's very similar to another statement that Jesus makes in chapter 14. Here in chapter 7, He's speaking to non-believers and he tells them of a time where I'm going somewhere and he says, where I am, you cannot come. But then in chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his own disciples and he says, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. Why? That where I am, there you may also be. Do you realize that in both of these statements, Jesus is talking about the same place. He's talking about that place that he is preparing called heaven. And he says to some, I'll be there, but you cannot come. And to others, he says, where I am, you may also be. He's talking about the same place. The question is, to which of these groups do you belong? To which group do you belong? Because you have a window of opportunity to respond. A window of opportunity to choose. I don't know about you, but I love lighthouses, and I love to visit lighthouses. We have quite a few here in the state of Florida, uh, some nearby. You've probably seen them, but um, there's this one lighthouse in particular. It's off the east coast of Scotland, and it is 11 miles 
into the North Sea. Um, one of the most impressive lighthouses ever built. It is called the Bell Rock Lighthouse. Now, I don't know if you've heard of it, but this one particular lighthouse has been called one of the seven wonders of the industrial world. Did you know that? You think, well, it looks like any other lighthouse. What is so special about this lighthouse that makes it so amazing, such a wonder, so different? Well, what's so different about it is the fact that it was built in 1807, and it was built upon a rock, a foundation that is usually 12 feet under water. You think, well, how could they in 1807 build that lighthouse on that rock 12 feet under the water, they were able to build it because every day during low tide, there's this brief amount of time, just four hours, when that rock would surface. 20 hours of the day, it's underwater, but four hours of the day, it's above water. And they discovered that during those four hours, that during that brief amount of time, they could work on that stone and they could chip away at that stone and they could prepare that stone and build upon that stone. And here is this lighthouse that has been enduring some of the worst storms for over 200 years, but it still stands. It still works still shining its light, but they knew every day, day by day, we've got just a brief amount of time to do this, and then it's gone. Ladies and gentlemen, I tell you this because we have, God has given to us a limited amount of time to build our lives on the rock of Jesus Christ. God has given to us as a church a limited amount of time to preach this gospel to the ends of the earth, to fill this world with the good news of Jesus Christ. But this window of time does not last forever. You know what happens? Eventually, the tide rises and the waters of God's judgment will rise. And when the waters of God's judgment rise. There really is just one thing that matters, and that is, do you know Jesus? Do you join me as we pray right now? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus from heaven to earth to live the life we should have lived and to die the death that we deserved to die to take our place on the cross, to fight the fight and then win the victory we could never win when he rose from the grave. And we thank you that Jesus did not just appear, but he was born and he lived and he died and he rose again so that we could be saved and so that we could know you personally. We've seen this morning in your word, it's not enough just to know things about you. You've made it possible for us to truly know you on a personal level by sending Jesus. And God, that is our desire for every person here. Help us not to make the mistake that others made and are making today 
of thinking that knowing you is simply filling our lives with religious activity. Because we see that it's possible to do that and miss out. It's possible to be very religious and very active and yet not know God. And so I pray this morning that all of those here would make that same observation that many of them made in verse 31. There's no one like Jesus. No one else who could do what he did. No one else who could fulfill the prophecies that he fulfilled and perform the works and the signs that he performed because he is who he says he is. He is the Christ. And you've given us this window of opportunity, this limited time to respond to him. And so, Father, I pray if there are any here today, maybe for some, this is that window of time right now that you've given them. And at this moment, they feel genuine conviction of sin. They understand that we have all rebelled against you. That we've broken your law and we are guilty. But Jesus died for us. And they understand that there is this need to respond by believing in him and confessing him as Lord. God, how I pray they would not allow that window of, of time to pass them by. Because Jesus said, the time will come when you will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you will not be able to come. Father, I pray that they would see that today is the day of salvation. And Father, knock on the door of their hearts by your grace so that today they would call upon you. And Father, help us as a church to take advantage of this time, this limited opportunity you have given us to do the work that you have called us to do, to represent Christ and to preach Christ here through our words and also through our deeds in homestead and to the ends of the earth and everywhere in between. God, give us the grace to do that. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.